The coming of Jesus, the life that he lived, the death that he died, his powerful resurrection, those were no accidents. Uh, those weren't just the random chance happenings that took place at a particular time in culture in world history. Those were things that were very intentional. They were planned out in the mind of God before Jesus came, and every action that Jesus took seemingly had a purpose. Uh, the actions that Jesus took had an intention to them. And often that intention is demonstrated in the Gospels by showing how what Jesus did connects back to ideas and to scriptures that were written earlier in time. Um, Jesus might um, go down to, to Egypt to flee from a ruthless king, and you come to find out that has a correspondence with a passage written in the book of Hosea hundreds and hundreds of years earlier. Uh, Jesus' birth, we find out, has resonances with Isaiah chapter 7 and verse 14. The city that Jesus was born in, Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. When you read the Gospel of Matthew specifically, one of the ways that Matthew shows intentionality into everything Jesus does is by consistently saying, now this happened, to fulfill what was written in the prophet, and then he'll quote some prophet. One of those uh, instances that I want to look at here in the lesson this morning comes in Matthew chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 4, and this is something uh, we, don't, we don't often think about uh, that Jesus did, but Jesus is Jesus of Nazareth. You know, when you read the Gospel of John, uh, when he's introduced uh, as having come from Nazareth, the question is asked, Nazareth? You know, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was not seen as a prominent city, certainly wasn't seen as a city that, like, the Messiah was supposed to come from. Nazareth had never produced anything great before. And so Jesus wears the name Jesus of Nazareth, uh, but even in that, there's something of a paradox or an irony in the Messiah from Nazareth. Uh, but did you know Jesus didn't always live in Nazareth? Uh, you know, you can see that Jesus, um, he was from Nazareth, but you can see that he uh, went to Egypt for a little while as a kid. You see that he uh, was, uh, spent some time in Bethlehem, it, it appears. That Jesus, yes, he was from Nazareth, but did you know that when he started his ministry, he actually moved from Nazareth? He moved to a different city in Galilee. Uh, in Mar Matthew chapter 4, we have this brief description of Jesus moving to live in a new city. And it turns out that even that event was intentional and corresponds to an earlier passage from the book of Isaiah. So we're going to look at what it says in Matthew chapter 4 about Jesus moving cities. Uh, and then we're going to look at Isaiah and find out why that's kind of important uh, for understanding Jesus and why that passage that Jesus fulfills helps fill in some of our uh, some of our knowledge about who he is and how he's to be viewed throughout the rest of his life in ministry. So Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12, it begins, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. All right, so it starts off on a dark note. Um, the Jews in the first century, even those living in Palestine or living in, in uh, Judea or uh, Galilee, they were not in charge of their own laws. They were not in charge of their own uh, customs. They were under occupation by the Roman Empire. And there was a Roman-appointed king, uh, Herod, who often um, had 
brush-ups against uh, a lot of the, the Jews and some of the things that would take place in Israel. We, we're introduced to him in Matthew chapter 1, uh, just a different Herod, but we're introduced to a Herod in Matthew chapter 1 who, out of fear for his own authority, hears that there's going to be some child-born king of the Jews, and he issues a slaughter of the children in Bethlehem. Uh, trying to just rid himself of any competition. Well, he eventually dies, and there's another Herod that replaces him. One of the things that's interesting about uh, the Herods is, in Matthew, they're often kind of just portrayed as Herod. Kind of like in in the book of Exodus, uh, you have Pharaoh. Well, if you're reading through all of it, you know it's not just one Pharaoh, uh, because Moses is gone for 40 years, and then he comes back. Like, there's, there's, uh, it has to be different Pharaohs who are part of it, but we're not told their names, we're just told Pharaoh, and it's almost as if Pharaoh it's himself is a character. He's a personification of evil, wicked ruler, right? You kind of have the same thing going on with Herod in Matthew. Uh, Herod and, and, and Pharaoh, there's a lot of uh, connections between them in the storyline of Matthew. But what we have here is John is going to be arrested uh, by Herod, and there's more detail on what happens there in chapter 14. But just know that that detail is setting the stage for understanding the times in which Jesus is living are some dark times. Um, They're not in charge. They don't have their own king. Uh, They have a, a king who is appointed for them, who, when there's a prophet who gets out of line, he arrests them, he has them thrown into a dungeon. And that's the time period in which Jesus is living. And at the hearing that John was taken into custody, Jesus withdraws into Galilee. And then verse 13 is where we find uh, him moving. It says, And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled at Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Um, so right there you have Jesus, he moves to a, a coastal city right on the Sea of Galilee, Capernaum, and that's in the region uh, of Galilee, but also more specifically, if you're looking at the different tribes of, of Israel, it's in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, we could read that and not think anything in the world about it and just continue on, but Matthew has noted something there. If you're thinking of Galilee, Zebulun, and Naphtali, that area there actually is an Old Testament passage that speaks about that area, an area in which times were dark, but then a bright light was brought to that area, uh, an area in which there was, uh, there was uh, foreign occupation and tragedy, but then that tragedy was turned into something joyful. And he says, I think I see something here. With Jesus moving to this area, uh, he's going to quote it in verses 14 through 16. Matthew talks about this move, and he says, Now this was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun, in the land of Naphtali, uh, by, the way, or by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, and keep that little phrase in your mind, Galilee of the Gentiles, uh, the people who were sitting in darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light dawned. And all of a sudden he says, so Jesus moves here, and I want you to picture a people sitting in darkness, a people in a land, the shadow of death, and all of a sudden light is going to dawn. All of a sudden there's going to be light in an area that was once darkness. And it's at that moment that Jesus, verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach and say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So just 
keep a couple things in your mind because we're about to flip back to the book of Isaiah and see what passage Matthew quotes here. But think for a moment, you have darkness and oppression and John being arrested. You have Jesus moving to a city where there's this promise of light in a time of darkness. And then from that, you have Jesus going to start proclaiming the very kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in that region. Now, with that in mind, turn back to Isaiah chapter 9, because that's the passage that Matthew's thinking about when he sees this move of Jesus. Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 begins with the passage that Matthew quoted, the first two verses of it. But then Isaiah 9 continues. And something, a good Bible study tip, anytime you're wanting to read the Bible, and you see in the New Testament a quotation from something in the Old Testament, go back there and read it. But also don't just read that verse. Read the surrounding context of that verse because usually the New Testament writer is aware of it. And usually some keys to understanding what he's doing and some keys to interpretation are going to be found in the context. So yeah, always read like the context of the New Testament. But when they quote the Old Testament, go back and read that and its context too and see what kind of connections you perhaps can find. Uh, looking at Isaiah chapter 9, the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus is likened to the events that are taking place right here in Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9 begins in darkness, and it begins in anguish. In fact, if you look at verse 22 of chapter 8, look at a verse right before it, it says, Then they will look to the earth, and behold, distress and darkness and gloom, uh, and the gloom of anguish, and they will be driven away into darkness. What is he talking about there? Well, if you've been reading Isaiah and you know kind of the time period that he's written in, there's a really powerful nation. It's not Rome this time. In Jesus' days, it's Rome. In the book of Isaiah, it's going to be the nation of Assyria. And Assyria is going to be the one occupying uh, the northern part of Judea. They're going to destroy uh, Israel uh, and Samaria and take them away as captives. But even down into the south, into the, the land of Judah, you're going to see them begin to set up camp. And so there's going to be uh, a lot of darkness and gloom because of fear of death and, and fear of, of imprisonment and fear of exile. Kind of like John the Baptist starting off that story being taken into prison. It's a time of darkness and gloom. Well, that's how Isaiah 9 is, is going to begin. Isaiah 9 and verse 1, after saying they're driven to distress, darkness, gloom, anguish. Those are not good words. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 1 says, But there will be no more gloom in her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he will make it glorious by the way of the sea and the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. So notice you have two different time periods being focused on. The past, anguish, distress, gloom, darkness. But then the later times, there's going to be joy. There's going to be uh, the anguish will be turned into something glorious, and you'll see light that's given. Uh, verses 2 and 3 will talk about that light, that gladness, that rejoicing. He says, the people who walk in darkness, they will see great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. And they will be glad in your presence. And with the gladness of harvest, the men rejoice with the divide, uh, when they divide the spoil. What you have is a picture of a, of a nation that is under the fear of threat, uh, of doom and darkness. But Isaiah is saying that's not going to last forever. 
There's going to be someone who comes who's going to be able to bring a day of gladness and joy. And we're not told specifically who that is yet. But as you keep reading, you find out that there's a king who's going to be introduced. And this king is going to be the one who you can put your hope in. This king is going to be one who comes from God himself as as a savior type figure. Uh, If you look at verse 6, giving more detail about how this darkness can be turned into light. He says, for a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness. Then on forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Remember the story we read in Matthew. John goes to prison and you have darkness. Jesus moves into the very cities that are mentioned right here in in chapter 9 of Isaiah. And we find out that there's going to be light given in a time of darkness. And then Jesus goes on to start preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has a pretty solid description there in chapter 9 and verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. Jesus is preaching the idea of this kingdom. Matthew is making a direct connection between that child who's born, the son who's given, the one who holds the government upon his shoulders, and Jesus at the beginning of his ministry. You're supposed to see these together. And in doing so, you're supposed to see that there's this idea of a king that's coming. Now, if you were living in the, in the days of Isaiah chapter 9, and you were hearing this, you'd be thinking, okay, what king is this going to be? And you could look around, and you could see that our king right now, King Ahaz, isn't this. <laughs> he, he, king Ahaz has not been this bright light. Uh, king Ahaz is himself someone who's terrified and fearful, and his solution to Assyrian dominance is going to be to, to try to make an alliance with them, give them a bunch of taxes, and, and give them all kinds of our goods so that maybe they'll be nice to us and they won't harm us. And he's acting entirely out of fear. He's acting entirely uh, faithless towards God. But if you keep reading Isaiah, there's another king who's going to be mentioned. King Hezekiah. He's going to uh, end up taking center stage in Isaiah 36 through 39. And you find out Hezekiah is a bit better. Uh, Hezekiah is not perfect, but he is someone who trusts in God. And you actually do have during that story in Isaiah 36 through 39, the fear of Assyria is taken away and they end up going back. And there's a lot of rejoicing in the land. And you can read this, and I think many, many people have, and they think, okay, so he's talking about a child being born. Maybe that's King Hezekiah. But then as you read about King Hezekiah, you think, okay, he's good, but really, read the descriptions in chapter 9 and verse 6. A child is born to us, a son is given to us, the government will be upon his shoulders, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his kingdom. The story of Hezekiah ends by finding out that there will be an emphatic end to the increase of his kingdom. Uh, If you're reading Isaiah 39, Isaiah has to go to Hezekiah and tell him, hey, you just showed Babylon that you have a lot of wealth. They're going to come in here and destroy you and destroy your wealth and take it all. Your sons are not going to survive this. And it's the, it's one of, it's, it's tragic, but it's kind of 
I don't know, it's so tragic, it's somewhat humorous. Uh, Hezekiah's response to finding out that his children and the kingdom after his reign is over will be destroyed, he says, oh, whew, the thing you've said is good because it's not going to happen in my day, it's going to happen in their day, which is not a good response. But it demonstrates Hezekiah might not be this. He might not be the one who has the eternal kingdom and who is the everlasting father and the prince of peace and the mighty God and the wonderful counselor. It's almost like, yeah, there's something good that happens there, but if you're expecting the next king who comes along to be the fulfillment of this, you're going to be left disappointed. And do you know what happens after Hezekiah? There's like the worst king ever, Manasseh, comes along. And then you see his son who's just like him. You have Josiah. There's this little brief period a little bit. But then during the days of Josiah's sons, Jerusalem is destroyed. And those kings are taken off into exile. And you don't have a king again. Like hundreds of years pass. And if you've read Isaiah 9 and you're looking for this darkness to end and this light to burst through, you're going to be disappointed. Because you don't really see anything all that glorious, and you certainly don't see any sort of kings that match this type of description. And I can't help but think maybe Matthew has noticed that. And Matthew wants you to know that God's promise has not gone uh, unanswered, or, or that God has not forgotten his promise, but rather God has plans to raise up a new king and a new kingdom. And it's going to happen in times of darkness. John the Baptist is arrested and Jesus moves to a new area. And Matthew wants to remind you of this promise of God about a king who's going to come. And it's right at that promise being quoted that Matthew begins to tell us that Jesus starts his ministry proclaiming the kingdom of God. Something is going to happen with this new one. And when you read these descriptions, chapter 9 and verse uh, 6 says, His name will be called. When you think about uh, other children who have names called to them earlier in Isaiah, just like two chapters earlier and in the chapter right before this one, in chapter 8, there's a child who has a name called Emmanuel. And you have this picture of this child who's going to be born, and the name Emmanuel means God with us. It's almost like he's going to keep trying to find ways to demonstrate that God has not abandoned his people even in times of darkness, but there's going to be something to look forward to, and it's going to uh, come with the very presence of God among his people. There's going to be a child named Emmanuel, God with us. Matthew also picks up on that quote and applies it to Jesus. And then here, he in, in Isaiah 9, he quotes that to apply it to Jesus. And we come to find out that this king is a wonderful counselor. You know, what, what good kings do is they like to find good and wise counselors to surround themselves with so that they can listen to them and get ideas for how to reign. And if you were to look at a lot of the kings of Israel, you'll find out that one of the things that leads to their downfall sometimes is listening to bad counselors. This king himself, he's not even going to need those other counselors because he himself will be the wonderful counselor. He himself will be the one who's called the mighty God. He's powerful, but then he's also uh, not merely a human being. Uh, he's going to be someone who comes in the very presence and power uh, and identity of God himself. He's going to be called eternal father. This king, you know, it's, it's the king being kind of like a father figure who takes care of the people is, is, is an idea you can find in a number of places. But here you have one where he's called the eternal father. What that means is he's a father you can always, 
always count on. No matter what time period you're living in, no matter uh, what the government's doing, whether you're talking about now or a thousand years from now, you still have this father. And he comes as the prince of peace. One of the things that's going to mark the kingdom of God is the idea of peace. He's going to come, he's going to be the ruler of peace, or the prince of, power, the prince of peace. And you see peace, it becomes the description of the kingdom in verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. When you look at some other passages in Isaiah that describe this peace, uh, one of them that comes to my mind is Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 4, where it says, He will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples, and they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. You have this idea of even weapons being turned into farming equipment because there's going to be something better than war going on. You have the idea of peace in this nation, in this kingdom, in this government that God has in store for Israel. And that's the very concept and idea that Matthew wants us to begin the ministry of Jesus with. So in that quote, turn back with me to Matthew chapter 4. In that quote, you see this idea of darkness being turned into light. And that's a common image for Jesus. Uh, that's a common image. Uh, the Gospel of John begins with that image of uh, in him was light and the light, uh, life and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. Um, light is a powerful image of Jesus for a couple of reasons. One, it's it's where God's initial creative act in this world begins. Like going all the way back to Genesis, uh, when there was a world of darkness and chaos, God said, let there be light. Um, every day begins with the rising of the sun, which is the bringing of light into a world of darkness. Jesus is promised to be that kind of light. And when he moves to this new area in Matthew chapter 4, that's the idea that's, that's given there by Matthew is that there's going to be light in this new area. How is Jesus going to be this light? Well, one way he will do it is by bringing with him the kingdom of heaven, which is going to be a kingdom of peace, which is going to uh, have a ruler who can be described as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. You have this hope that even in darkness, there's something better on the horizon. But then as you keep reading Matthew, you come to find out that peace and light become an important idea of what Jesus' ministry and what should define his people is all about. So like right after this in Matthew 4, you get to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is going to say things like, blessed are the peacemakers. If you're going to have a kingdom of peace, then the people who make up that kingdom ought to be people who bring peace, who keep peace, who try to establish peace where they are. If you keep reading that Sermon on the Mount, you'll see Jesus say things like chapter 5 and verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus comes, and we find out that he's coming bringing light, and certainly he does that in himself. In the Gospel of John, Jesus will say, I am the light of the world. Jesus will come by himself being a way that shines light into the darkness. But he also comes calling us as followers of him to be that light as well. To be that 
source of peace in the world as well. We're invited into his mission and we're added as part of his ministry to be peaceful uh, peacemakers and to be people who bring light into God's world. Um, I like how when you read Isaiah, you can look around and you can say, okay, Assyria is bringing the darkness. There's going to be a king who comes. He's going to bring light. That means maybe Assyria. You can, you, can, you can find some resonances with Hezekiah there maybe in some ways, not completely. Uh, but you can, you can read through it and you can see how it fits in its historical setting. But then you can see those same ideas picked, it up, picked up and placed in the life of Jesus. And you can see how it fits in his historical setting. It's like these texts can sometimes shed light on the world in new ways as time moves on and as history changes and the circumstances change. We're called to be the light of the world. We're called to bring light into darkness. Uh, as the holidays approach and as the year comes to an end, let's think for a minute about where we see darkness. Let's think for a minute about where it is that you see anguish or perhaps gloom or perhaps darkness in the world around us, and think of perhaps some ways that we can shine the light of Christ in those areas. How can you do that? I know the holidays are tough on a lot of people. Um, I know sometimes uh, as the holidays approach, um, memories begin to, to fill our souls, and some of them aren't always uh, happy, or some of them are happy, but they bring sorrow because the happiness of those memories are now clouded by grief or by mourning. And, and you can look around and you can see that there are people who are experiencing darkness. You can look around and you can see people who are experiencing uh, gloom. What if we took seriously the call to bring light into that darkness? What if we took seriously the call to try to bring peace in a world that often is in need of it? And we visited we called. We tried to uh, spend quality time with. Oh, as we bring our lesson to a close, and we think of the way that Jesus is the light of the world, remember that he calls us to be that light also, and start thinking of ways, how can I bring light where I see darkness around me, in the life of someone I know, in the life of a family I care about, in the life of other people here at church, in the life of a neighbor, in the life of a coworker. When there's darkness, how can I become, through Jesus, the source of light? And in so doing, people might be able to see the goodness of God through your good works, and maybe even come to glorify him. When he says in chapter 5, let your light so shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven, you have an opportunity there to bring glory to God by shining the light of Christ anywhere you go. So let's be aware of the darkness, and let's take seriously the call to be lights of the world uh, as, we, as we look around us. If there's anyone here who maybe you're looking at your life and you're seeing darkness, whether it's the darkness of sin or pain, uh, and you would like the help and the prayers and maybe the light from a body of believers who can help be with you through this time, we pray that you would let that be known. We're going to have some elders in the library in the back. You can go and you can uh, talk with them and, uh, and, and ask for prayers and help. And if there's anyone who has the need uh, to come forward, we ask that you would do so and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.